Hello, I'm Miranda Sawyer and I've got some news about the news. By popular demand, Paper Cuts, our brilliant podcast where we look at the madness and majesty of the daily press, is going five days a week. That means you can hear my hilarious guests getting into the obsessions, the weirdness and occasionally the triumphs of the great British press every day from Monday to Friday. That's Paper Cuts, now out mid-morning every weekday. Follow us now on your favourite podcast app. Paper Cuts, we read the papers so you don't have to. and welcome to The Bunker, your needs know on news and politics, seven days a week, with me, Dr. Kasia Tomashevich. As a child, I was always baffled whenever I heard that the Prime Minister was going to checkers. Was this a metaphor like being sent to Coventry or some other sort of political jargon? Checkers is, of course, the prime ministerial country home that continues to be a key site for political decision-making in the UK, including, if you can remember back this far, Theresa May's 2018 Brexit plan. So while we might think of country homes as more fitting for National Trust heritage sites, how have they shaped and how do they continue to shape our political landscape? With me to answer this question is Kate Repford, Professor of Art History at the University of Birkbeck. Hi, Kate. Hi, it's very nice to be here. Kate, I'm more of a World War II bunker sort of girl than a country home visitor. Why do they have such a prominent position in the cultural landscape of the UK? The position in the cultural landscape is quite extraordinary and it's partly because there are simply so many of them. Mm. English Heritage only has a few, but the National Trust have got more than 300 country houses in their portfolio. But even that is dwarfed by the private houses whose owners are members of historic houses and there's more than 1,500 of those. So we do have a lot of country houses. And it's become, over the last couple of centuries, it's become a very established thing to do, to go on a Saturday to a country house, Mm. have a picnic in the park, Mm. go into the house. The other thing that's happened is from about the mid-20th century onwards, they've been overlaid with this extraordinary image, which has come out of things like Brideshead Revisited and Downton Abbey. And I think that's a huge part of their appeal today. Absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. When I was writing the script for this, I was just thinking all about Brideshead Revisited and these Mm -hmm. kind of heritage films, I guess. So just to take us back to Chequers, Chequers was given to the nation's prime ministers as a country retreat in 1921. And I was really interested to learn that this was mainly in response to a new type of emerging politician who wasn't of the landed gentry, so didn't have a country home, which now seems like a really dated idea to give the prime ministers, to bequeath prime ministers a country home because, heaven forbid, they might not have a country home to make important political decisions in. So I think this kind of shows how clearly political country homes are. So how much of our politics has actually been decided in country homes? The short answer to that, I would say, is a huge amount. So the the relationship between the country house and politics goes back for centuries. So because Mm. of the way local and national government works, the country house has always been at the heart of decision making and power. And for a long time, all the lords were country house owners. The majority of MPs were country house owners. 
And it is a really interesting moment at the start of the 1920s when Arthur Lee gives checkers and says we can no longer assume that the prime minister will have his, as it would have been, assumed at that time his own country house and he needs one. And that's the other interesting assumption there, that you need a country house. Mm. You have your residence in town, but you need somewhere you can go out to, breathe the fresh air of the countryside, invite people around for a weekend of visiting and entertaining and conversation, and an assumption that that's a good forum in which to work through the issues and policies of the day. Hearing you say that is just fascinating to me because, again, it kind of just shows a very specific mindset of how the country was run historically, a really specific way of thinking about how, like, you can't make political decisions if you just have a flat in London or a flat in Birmingham. You have to have a country home in order to run the country. Yeah, it really does go back a long way. So very famously, Sir Robert Walpole, who's often considered to be the first prime minister, of course, he had Houghton in Norfolk. And not only is that, if anyone's been to Houghton, they'll know. I mean, it's huge. It's got amazing interiors. It had the most extraordinary art collection. But Walpole would go out there with his politicians and have these big meetings called the Norfolk Congresses, which were written about in the press because they were known for their feasting and drinking and hunting as well as for their discussion. But that model's very established at that point. But it all started with the Roman poet Horace. So if you read Horace, there's this idea that's known as virtuous rural retirement, which is the idea that the leaders have to go out into the country to regroup, to regenerate, and then they'll be able to come back to the heart seat of power and rule more effectively. I think one of the things that always worries me a little bit or concerns me a little bit is this idea of politics happening behind closed doors, you mm -hmm. know, kind of away from the spotlight of the public. So kind of in a less democratic way, in a way. Do we think that these are still places where politics is decided behind closed doors? Yeah, it's really hard because obviously, I mean, to some degree, we don't know. I mean, we don't know what goes on. <laughs> it is interesting that there have been these key moments in fairly recent history where politicians do go behind the closed doors of the country house in order to thrash things out. So obviously, the most famous event recently was Theresa May and the Brexit discussions at Chequers. But it goes back to Sir Philip Sassoon at the end of the First World War hosted discussions around the peace process at his country houses and invited soldiers and statesmen there to thrash things out. And you've also got at Blickling Hall in the 1930s, that's where we've got the Marquis of Lothian, who was part of the Cliveden set and part of that drive towards appeasement, hosting politicians at Blickling and even having von Ribbentrop to visit for wow. a chat. Wow. So it's where these sort of very deep embedded discussions happen that then feed into some of the most important national issues, international issues of the day. I want to think a little bit more about country homes. One of the things that I find really fascinating about them is that they are places of contestation because they're both kind of, they're this upstairs, downstairs. When you go and visit them now, you see where the servants were living and you see where the owners of the homes were living. And I was wondering, considering the important role of places like Chequers in our political landscape, does something like that being so embedded in our, in our political landscape contribute to the idea that we're still 
in a really heavily class stratified society. I mean, obviously, we're not as heavily class stratified as we were at the turn of the 20th century, for example. But does having such an important political building in our cultural imaginary still show that we're in some way dedicated to the idea of class in this country? It's a really interesting question. I mean, part of the point of checkers is a very practical one about security. So if you've got the US president over, it's easier to look after them at checkers Mm. than it is in London. So there, there is a kind of practical element of it as well. And there's an idea of entertaining and hosting, which the country house you know, has always lent itself to extremely well. I think that it does still feed into class issues. And it's partly the assumption that we should have these houses. It comes through in the presentation in some of these houses that this is the, this is the seat of the Earl of, this is the seat of the Duke of. Mm. And isn't it wonderful that he and his family have lived here for hundreds of years? Isn't it wonderful that they had so much taste, that they spent their money so well? It was in the 1980s, there was some research by someone called Laura Jane Smith, which was very interesting, which argued that, in fact, the narrative of the country house is primarily about the middle class, And it's about the middle class coming together and feeling cohesive as a middle class as they go to upper class residences and admire the photos on the piano and the portraits on the wall and engage with that world of the gentry and the aristocracy. That's such a fascinating idea that actually the purpose of country house visiting is about how we create cohesion within the working class. I just never thought of that before. So I think one of the things that springs to my mind when I think about country houses is that they represent a bit of a dichotomy. So they're both places with these kind of opulent facades that represent historic grandeur. But they're also places that because they're so old and they cost so much to renovate, they're almost like decaying assets. You know, so they're kind of, they're this dichotomy of of being really fabulous and then also kind of crumbling, this like decaying glory, I guess, this de- decaying beauty. And I wonder whether, like how much we can trace Britain's economic decline through the country house, as it were. Is the country house a symbol of Britain's economic decline? The upkeep of these places is hugely expensive. I mean, they the costs are absolutely exorbitant. And most of the private owners now have to have quite a diverse portfolio of income generation. So they'll do yoga retreats and conferences and host weddings. And you have to do that to kind of maintain the property. It's only a very few places where visitor income will be enough to really look after the place. But the story gets particularly critical. It's basically around the turn of the 20th century, when things really start to go wrong for the country house. So that's when death duties start rising, agricultural depression has an effect. Then when you get into the First World War and the Second World War, you've got heirs to these places are killed on the front. Running costs have gone through the roof. And that's when it all starts to go a bit pear-shaped. And there's a period in the mid-20th century where a lot of people are very worried. A lot of them are getting destroyed and pulled down and sold and repurposed. And there's a lot of concern about that happening from certain sectors of society. I'm really fascinated by this kind of figure. I'd say maybe, I don't know whether, well, you'd be better placed to say whether they're 19th or 20th century, but this figure of this kind of, I guess, someone from the landed gentry who is asset rich, but money poor. It's just fascinating whenever you read that in literature, for example. Yeah, I think that's really true. And so you've got the National Trust um, coming in and doing quite a lot to save country houses, particularly after the Second World War. 
But that's also the period where Longleat gets going as this huge concern and Woburn Abbey and places like that. And that's where you get sort of people thinking very practically about income generation. Mm. The other thing I'd say on this, which I always find fascinating, is the fact that country houses, this is just my impression, but country houses seem to get more popular the worse things are. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, I've heard so many people who went their way through the entire run of Downton Abbey during the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. As a, as a comfort blanket. Yeah. And David Canadine's written very interestingly about this. And there's one phrase which always sticks in my head where he says, when the shopkeepers go out of business, we become a nation of ruminators. Yeah. People want to immerse in this kind of world of the country house as a kind of comfort blanket. Brilliant. That actually brings me on to my next question, which is, after the Second World War, country houses underwent a period of decline, as we've been mentioning, before then being revamped by the National Trust, um, especially around the 1980s. And around that time, there was a lot of claims and a lot of criticisms of the heritage industry that said that Britain was becoming obsessed with its heritage because it couldn't face the political realities of the present. What do you make of that? One of the episodes that I um, I find particularly interesting is a moment in 1974. Uh, <laughs> uh, so in 1974, the V&A hosted a very important exhibition called The Destruction of the Country House. And in Country House Studies, this is an absolutely pivotal moment because it was an exhibition that was a lament to all of the destroyed country houses. So it was organised by people like Roy Strong and John Harris and one of the centrepieces, which I wish I could have seen, uh, was the Hall of Destruction, where they put together a neoclassical portico tumbling down. And on each of the blocks, there was a picture of a lost country house. And then as you looked around the Hall of Destruction, there was a soundtrack of John Harris intoning names of houses that had been destroyed over a soundtrack of falling masonry and burning rubble. Wow. So it was the most extraordinary lament for the lost country house. Mm. And this is 1974. This is the year that starts with the three-day week because mm. of the energy crisis mm. around the miners' strike. This is the year where Labour gets in and then gets a majority later in the year. And this is the moment when there's this simultaneously this extraordinary drive to preserve and promote the country house, which I find a very interesting cultural moment. It's so fascinating, isn't it? Because I think that was also when Slade's utopian optimism at Christmas said, look to the future now, it's only just begun. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, yeah. there's, just, there's such a mishmash of cultural laments, I guess, in a way, and like different cultural messages. <laughs> get into the history of country houses a little bit. The Victorians were absolutely obsessed with country house visiting, even if they themselves lived in a country house. So clearly, obviously, they were once really aspirational. Do people still aspire to live in country houses? Because I'm thinking here of the Blur song. And obviously, country house living is painted as incredibly garish and really cringe. There's also, I think with things like the Blur song, there's something about the country house, which again goes back a really long way, which is about new money. Yeah. So yeah. the country house, as the sort of general idea goes, should have been in the family for 300 years, for 400 years, for 500 years. 
and it should be run by people in tweeds. And the new purchase of a country house, or worse, the new building of a country house, has always alienated certain sectors of society. I'm aware, having been somebody who's been going around houses for many years, you always overhear conversations of, you know, imagine what it would be like to live here. And a fascination with the people who do live there in the case of privately owned houses. So I like to earwig on conversations with room guides where visitors are saying, oh, what's what's the Duke's son like? And how often do they do they come here? And do they do they have Christmas here? That's quite a common thing for people to be interested in. But it's a very mixed thing because I'm not sure how many people would really like to live in one of these places. I mean, they're cold. <laughs> very drafty. They're not comfortable. You have to have visitors coming around yeah. all the time just for the upkeep. And that is, that's a key issue with country houses. Very famously, the first Duke of Wellington, who was given Stratfield Say in Hampshire, had to put a little sign outside to stop people peering in at him while he was in his study. <laughs> So they're rather difficult spaces to inhabit, Mm -hmm. I think. So there's a general idea that we'd all quite like to live in a country house, but I'm not sure any of us really would. So just on the idea of imagining, I know that during the First World War and during the Second World War, country homes were repurposed for soldiers, often as hospitals, so that they could be treated there, so that they could convalesce there. So how does this change how we see the functionality of these spaces? The period around the First World War and particularly the Second World War, is it's an extraordinary phase for country houses. They're already in trouble by that point. Mm. But what happens during requisitioning is critical because usually when they're given back to the owners after the war, they're in a bad state, which is sort of no comment. You know, the, they were needed for the war effort. But that's often the point when owners decide have decided to sell or hand it over to the National Trust. When the National Trust had launched the Country House Scheme, they had much more success in getting owners to sign up after the Second World War because they were left with these places that had been used as military barracks and were in a terrible condition and needed a lot of upkeep. Mm. And it's a very potent, I think in the culture of the Country House, it's a very potent period because, of course, Brideshead Revisited, which we've already mentioned, which is contributes so much to the image of the Country House, is, of course, bookended by the story of requisitioning because it starts with Charles Ryder going back to Brideshead where some military headquarters have been set up and then the story ends with him and Hooper reflecting on, on the lost glories of the place. But if I if I can tell you about one of my favourite stories of requisitioning actually is not to do with the military directly, but at Chatsworth, they moved in a girls' school from North Wales during the Second World War because the girls' school had been um, had been requisitioned. And there were these extraordinary images of this girls' school being run at Chatsworth during this period. And the different spaces, if anyone's been there, these are grand opulent, extraordinary interiors. And they were repurposed for the girls. So they would do chemistry in the stables. And (laughs) the conservatory was used for art. And all of these spaces. And I remember going through the list of what all the rooms were used for and thinking, well, that makes a lot of sense. Of course, you would do chemistry away from the main house in the stables. (laughs) But I think it does really change the way people see houses and what they're for. And it certainly changes the direction of travel. For the country house. So it's impossible to ignore that lots of these houses were built or purchased on the proceeds of slavery and colonialism, something that you would think would be obvious given Britain's history. 
Why has there been such resistance to exploring these histories in these spaces? It's been an extraordinary moment. So there was a lot of good work done in 2007 around the bicentenary of the abolition of slavery, which went fine, basically. And then we got to that moment in 2020 around Black Lives Matter when the National Trust published their interim report into the legacies of colonialism and historic slavery. And that was when it really, everything, I mean, everyone will know, it really, the debate really, really got going. And a lot of it was to do with the particular status of the National Trust and the role of the National Trust in the nation. But I went through a lot of the press coverage after the release of the report and there was a lot that was about, we want to have a nice day out. Mm. We don't want to be going around a country house thinking about the fact that this money came from sugar plantations in the West Indies. Or, I mean, obviously money also comes from coal mines and from, I mean, money often stinks. It comes from exploitation. Mm. And bringing those narratives into a house where... Some people may well want to think, well, I just want to look at the lovely Palladian plasterwork or the or the gilt furniture or the nice painting collection. I think those tensions really came to the surface it's at back that to this, point. It's back to this idea of escapism, right? Mm-hmm. That people are using these sites, not always, but often as like sites of escape. I think that's, yeah, I think it's really fascinating. And it's such a complex issue because all of these debates get brought into a very heated media atmosphere where actually the activists who've been working for a really long time to get these legacies, these histories like recognised, what they're saying gets twisted in the media to create this kind of furore. And actually all they're asking for is better representation within these sites that acknowledge those histories. And actually I don't think it's too much, you know, it's not too much to ask that they do get acknowledged in those spaces because it's about who those spaces are for as well and what they could be. But at the same time, it's who's creating these heated discussions, these heated debates in the media and who's really profiting from them, Mm -hmm. you know, who really benefits from generating rage around these sites, I think is really fascinating. And I always find it interesting that the country house seems to be where a lot of things come home to roost. So I found it very interesting that one of the properties that was listed in the National Trust report of, so they did 93 properties in their portfolio that had established links with colonialism and slavery. And the one that got most, attracted most media attention was Chartwell. Yes. Because it was to do with Winston Churchill. And there was a lot there about Winston Churchill and his place in the nation's history and the national consciousness and the way people feel about Churchill. But for me, it was that combination of Churchill and his country house and the country house where people go to see where Churchill lived and worked and was at home. So you had this sort of nexus of Churchill, country house and home. And I think flagging Churchill's links to empire really sort of got things going within that context. It's fascinating because you would just think this is completely not uncontroversial because we can make value judgments about those links. But to say that Churchill had links to empire because he lived in an imperial world. Mm. Britain, Britain, the Secretary of State for the colonies. Exactly. He opposes uh, Indian independence. You know, it's I mean, the report states states those facts. Yeah. But then we had the culture secretary getting very upset and the story unravels 
Laurent Stoller wrote about colonial aphasia that you can't even see when something is related to imperialism. And as soon as someone points out that there is a history there of imperialism or a link to imperialism even, even if it's not making any value judgments, people go... I can't deal with this. I'm not sure what I'm seeing here. And it, and it really presents like an affront, almost in a way that they weren't expecting that history to exist in that space, mm. rather than thinking, well, of course, Britain was an imperial nation until, I mean, you know, a bit after the Second World War. Th this was the fact of life then. But I, I, yeah, you'd think it completely uncontroversial to make statements about that. And it's interesting because the controversy isn't coming from the value judgment. The controversy is coming just from saying the facts of life or like the historical mm -hmm. facts of that of that time. And the interesting thing is the country house is actually a really good site in which to tell those stories. Yes, yeah. So if we want to think about the nation's history, the country house provides some really good opportunities to do it. They've, the National Trust has done some particularly good work at Deerham Park, where through the story of the owner of that house in the late 17th century, they've fleshed out some of the story of empire in a really interesting and embedded way so that you genuinely learn more about mm. the imperial past. So it's it's not as straightforward, he was a bad man, therefore you shouldn't enjoy his nice house. It's more we can use this property in order to tell people some of the stories that they might not know already. So that leads me on to my final question to you, Kate, which is we often hear that Britain is full and when you look at how big these country houses are, <laughs> how much money they cost to run, do you think it would be a good idea to maybe raise them all to the ground and build council homes instead? <laughs> <laughs> Unsurprisingly, I would probably say no. I am obviously personally rather partial to a country house and I do enjoy a visit to a country house. But I think I think they do they do fulfill important functions. They, mm. you know, they do provide green spaces. They do contain a lot of art and furniture and interior design, which is spread across the country. I think that's really important. So you might not be near a major gallery, but you might be near a house which has got a very good painting collection. So there's that going for these places as well. One of the, when the National Trust does surveys, one of the top things that always comes out from visitors is they want a nice day out. And that's great. People need nice days out. Mm. I don't think that clashes with engaging with the problematic histories of those places. And I also think you can, as I was saying before, you can do things with these places to enrich people's understanding. So a couple of weeks ago, I was at Kedleston Hall in Derbyshire, where they've been doing some very interesting, they've had a contemporary artist in of South Asian descent, engaging with the Curzon collection, which is this collection amassed by Curzon, who was Viceroy of India at the end of the 19th century. And there's a large collection of South Asian jewellery, which has always been in this museum, historic museum downstairs. And this this artist, local artist, bought out the jewellery, got someone to wear it. There's photography, there's video, there's she she did some um, recontextualisation work. And I think that can do very important things. Um, and it can tell the local community very important stories about histories, but also current people and their heritage. Brilliant. Kate, thank you so much for joining me today in the bunker. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, please support The Bunker on Patreon. For as little as £3 a month, you can get extras, in addition to that warm, glowing feeling you get from knowing you're supporting independent media. I'm Dr Kasia Tomaszewicz. Thanks for listening.
In her final appearance, this episode of The Bunker was written, produced and presented by our triple threat, Dr. Kasia Tomashevich. The producer was Liam Tate and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Bye, Kasia. Thank you.